Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is not an exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. living in a time where unprecedented challenges are increasingly frequent, from loss of biodiversity to drought, floods, fires and extreme and extraordinary weather events, to an infectious coronavirus pandemic continuing to rage through communities around the world, to the challenges of information, how it's shared and then how we understand the challenges around us that we face. Environmental, biological and technological challenges that may be catastrophic risks to our future. And alongside this, Marked growing inequality, the challenge of gender discrimination and racism, forces that divide rather than unite, promoting rather than overcoming adversity. We look for leadership in times of crisis, and yet it feels the more we need effective leadership, the harder it is to find. As the challenges for our future grow, how will we find the leadership to see humanity survive and flourish? Over the past three episodes of Policy Forum Pod, we've explored leadership and democracy, from the historical context given by Chris Wallace and Frank Bongiorno to the emerging models of representation with Carolyn Hendricks and Dennis Ginevan, and last week to the challenge and opportunities of addressing gender in representation and power with Natasha Stott-Despoyer. Today's final episode in this series has a future gaze, a lens toward our human future and how we might get there from here from the structures around us today. Welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. My name's Anna Greta Hunter. I'm a cardiologist and I'm the Human Futures Fellow with the College of Health and Medicine. And I'm delighted to be back in the physical studio today with Sharon Bessel, my co-host. Sharon, how are you? Hi, Anna Greta. It is good to be back together again. Of course, we've been virtually together over the past couple of episodes, but not in the same room. It has so. been a while since we were physically in the same space. So yeah. it's great to see you again. Fantastic. Likewise. It's good to be sitting together. And for those of you who don't know me, I'm Sharon Bessel. I'm Professor of Public Policy here at the Crawford School. Policy Forum Pod, of course, is produced by PolicyForum.net. We're part of the Crawford School of Public Policy, and the Crawford School is Asia-Pacific's leading graduate policy school. We have a range of master's degrees and short courses and uh, continuing education programs through Crawford, and I would recommend you check out what's available at Crawford by checking out the website crawford.anu.edu.anu. 
So, Sharon, what are we doing today? Well, this is the final episode in our mini-series on leadership and democracy. And what a series it's been. Anna Greta, you have already noted who we've spoken to. Um, that first episode with Chris Wallace and Frank Brongiorno, I think, was just incredible in setting up the scene and in understanding how history has shaped the kinds of politics and leadership that we have today. And, of course, hearing from Carolyn Hendricks and Dennis Ginevan about the rise of local voices and how that might be reshaping democracy is is fundamentally exciting and interesting for a political sociologist, but I think also really important in terms of how we think differently about some of the challenges that are facing us. And of course, that conversation that we had with Natasha Stottespoia last week was incredible. And I think the insights that Natasha brought about particularly the gendered nature of politics and why we see the kinds of problems that we have at the moment, but also in terms of thinking forward and, and again, thinking about democratic repair was in some ways very confronting, but also I found incredibly optimistic. Today we've got a conversation that I'm really looking forward to to wrap up this series. We have got an excellent guest to talk with us today. Anna Greta, would you like to introduce our special guest? So today we've got Scott Ludlam. Scott's the, been the Senator for Western Australia for two, from 2008 through to 2015. He was the co-deputy leader of the Australian Greens from 2015 to 2017. And of course, he's the author of a new book, which I imagine many people have read. I've certainly had a good look through it. The Full Circle, A Search for the World That Comes Next. So welcome to Policy Forum's uh, pod, Scott. It's great to have you with us. It's really nice to be here. Scott, we, we wanted to start talking today a little bit about the culture and the nature of politics in Australia. Um, that's something that we've talked about across this series. And it's been noted from, I think, each of our guests that we have a particularly combative adversarial approach to politics in Australia. And we see that particularly through question time, which is the part of parliament that most people see on their television screens or hearing news grabs. I wanted to start by getting your thoughts on the current tone of the debate in Australian politics. Would you agree with, with that um, assertion that I've just made, that, that Australian politics is particularly combative? And if so, why we see that particular tone in politics in Australia? It is like that. I mean, question time is not much of a reflection of the general day-to-day workings of parliament. And it's, it's kind of a shame that that's most people's main window into what happens in there is the most theatrical and degraded hour in the parliamentary schedule is what most people think that place is. But and it does give you a window into the culture of the place. The, the bullying, the misdirection, the antics and the kind of insider stuff where you can tell that the people in that place are playing to dynamics that make sense in that context and look absolutely incomprehensible or nasty from the outside. But it is only a narrow slice into the operations of that place. And I feel as though a certain amount of, you know, rough and tumble is expected. It's politics. It's where ideas come to clash um, and to be aired and differences to be aired. So there's always going to be that element of friction to it. Um, but I would agree with with your previous guests that it's reached a particularly degraded level 
at the moment. Scott, you sat in the, the the Australian Senate for a number of years. Does the particular role of the Senate as the state's house or as a state of review make the nature of debate less combative and perhaps more collegial in the Senate when compared with the House of Representatives? Yeah, I think its role as a state's house is is to a degree a bit overblown in the sense that the the really rigid discipline that exists within major party politics in the country tends to wash out the original role, I guess, that the Constitution and the framers of the Constitution had in mind for the Senate. Apart from the fact that the numbers are skewed in favour of states with the smaller populations, it still tends to be party discipline that dominates. And obviously, they cut across state and territory lines. I think it is true that the that the Senate does have a more collegial nature. I wonder whether that's in part because we spend so much time in much closer quarters with each other in committees and that that does tend to create a more collaborative environment, but that's apocryphal. I mean, you can tell, though, by by the tone of the debates on the floor that there are different cultures between the two houses. But ultimately, it does get locked down into, into major party dynamics. Scott, in your book, Full Circle, which is really a great read, you talk about ecological politics, about leadership, and the need for ecological politics and leadership that is more humane, that is regenerative, and that respects and cares for this planet that we're all dependent on. How close does our current system of government come to enabling a conversation about the new directions that we need to take? (laughs) Well, it doesn't. It doesn't at all. It's designed to shut those voices out. The cartoon version, I suppose, is that our politics have evolved to mediate collisions between labour and capital. And that's what a lot of the textbooks tell you is going on in in our political systems and on on the floors of debating chambers is that that's mediating that, um, you know, those class interests. And it's obviously it still does that, not very effectively, but that's still its, its role. But what's happening is that the table on which these political games are played is tilting because the whole structure is now operating in a mass extinction context where ecological factors and and planetary scale processes are now political actors. And our current, um, you know, despite the work of the Greens over the last 20 or 30 years, where we've carved out this place to speak for those issues, uh, we're still not in a majority. Um, And for the most part, we're, we're there on the crossbench providing that voice but we haven't um, uh, at a at a state or federal level. Te- territories are a little bit different, and the ACT in particular, um, been able to um, to promote those views to such a degree where we're regularly winning arguments, where we're frequently in the minority. So no, our current political structures are basically completely captive. Labor has been on the back foot since the nineteen seventies. Um, that's Labor with a U. And the the interests of global capital are absolutely ascendant and locked down. And in that um, in that regard, we're we're dealing with a structure that is devouring the planet before our eyes. And current political structures are actually part of the problem. They're in no way helping mediate any kind of solution. Scott, you've begun to talk about climate change, and I think we really need to use that as an example of the way in which our democracy needs attention and our leadership structure uh, may need to change. Let's talk a little bit about the challenge of climate change over the last couple of decades. It's been one of the areas that Australian leaders really have struggled to deal with effectively, even in face of catastrophic events like Black Summer. 
Climate politics has been part of the reason why we've seen this leadership churn in both the ALP and the Liberal Party over the last couple of decades. Why is this issue so fraught politically? Because it's not the politics that are that are really driving what's happening in Parliament at the moment. It's a very narrow and small but extremely politically powerful industrial sector that has a lock in South Africa and in other parts of the world they would call it state capture where you've still got the appearance of democratic institutions, the system still seems to be functioning, parts of it do still function. But the main kind of decision-making structures have been locked down in the interests of a very narrow and particular industrial sector. And everybody's kind of carrying on in that as though that's perfectly normal. Uh, but that's why things are broken. It's, it's, not, it's not that complex. And people have charted and mapped exactly how it works And I think it's time that we named it. We're suffering from a form of state capture. We're not the only ones on earth who are doing that. Others have named it, recognised it, called it out and dealt with it. And we we have to do that as a matter of extreme urgency here or we're going to stay deadlocked. I agree. What's the dynamic between state capture and leadership failure? How, How does state capture prevent us from seeing effective leadership? It means the people that we're taught to recognise as leaders, the guy who stands up at the podium in front of a couple of Australian flags and makes policy announcements and declarations, um, you know, we're trained to recognise that that is the leader, but he's not writing his speeches. He's not writing the bills that he introduces to Parliament. Others are doing that for him. And if he steps out of line, as Kevin Rudd did or as Julia Gillard did, they are disposed of. They're subjected to very large-scale character assassination in the press, they're subjected to internal destabilisation through manipulating major party factions behind the scenes, uh, and they, their careers are destroyed. And that's happened enough times in modern political history in Australia that leaders know not to step out of line. So we've got, on the one hand, a very compliant and basically traumatised entity in the Labor Party that uh, just does what industry says while pretending to still be the nice guys, or we've got total capture uh, in the case of the Liberal National Party, where they're just overtly running industry agendas and trying to dress it up as though it's some kind of public interest. And that's why we're locked up. So you've still got this valuable role that our electoral system permits the existence of the Greens, permits the existence of of really well-run and well-structured independent campaigns that can occasionally knock off a major party politician. And these people, whether they're Greens or independents, aren't owned by these industry blocks, but they don't have the numbers. They're still on the crossbench. So we've got to sort out this this hole that industry has on the major parties or we're going to stay stuck. Scott, I wanted to tease this out a bit more. There are so many issues kind of bound up in this this kind of complexity of, of state capture. When you say owned, is that through political donations? Is it through the role and collusion of certain parts of the media in presenting political debates in a particular way. Now, what is it that's creating this this ownership of the major parties in particular? I feel in some ways as though the role of donations is actually overblown. Mm. It's definitely a part of it, but you can see that um, across the states and territories, there are very different political donation regimes in terms of reporting timeframes, who can and can't donate, caps, that kind of stuff. Uh, and yet we still see that the capture carries on regardless. So donations are important and there are a set of reforms that the Australian Democracy Network and others have proposed. There's a lot of work being done actually in the last 10 years on donations reform. So keep it on the table. It's an important piece of it. Part of it is the revolving doors, the fact that personnel are cycling through industry blocks, the media, particularly Seven West and, and News Corp, 
and political officers, both as as MPs and also as senior advisors. And that revolving door just runs between those three poles kind of interchangeably. So you've got a unified class of people who are moving from industry through media, through political tiers, and then back again. They all know each other. They all talk to each other, and they're, they're acting basically as a unified block. You've got the media acting as a disciplining agent, where if you step out of line, they'll just smash you day after day on the front page or just be sledging you hour after hour on, on tabloid radio. Uh, and you've got the role of, of large-scale influence campaigns run by things like the Minerals Council <clears throat> and the oil and gas lobby, where they're doing everything from sponsoring uh, arts, cultural and sporting entities and splashing their logos all over the place, all the way through to running campaigns to knock off prime ministers as the Minerals Council did with Kevin Rudd in around 2010 when the mining tax was being proposed. And all of these things kind of coagulate together. So the role of money is key, obviously. But what you end up with is an incentive structure that says to survive in major party politics, you have to do, you have to basically just slot in with, with the resources sector agenda. Otherwise, you're not going to last very long. You're less likely to get pre-selected. Um, you're going to get the crap kicked out of you in your local newspaper. Uh, they'll letterbox, they'll run social media campaigns against you. The whole thing kind of works as a, as a unified entity. And over time, people in the major parties are disciplined because they've seen very high-profile cases of what happens when you stick your neck out. So Carolyn Hendricks, in, in our conversation about mending democracy, was talking very much about how party politics is broken and the d- disconnect between what elected uh, people who are constituents and voters in an electorate might want and what their elected representatives do, particularly from the major party perspective. Um, we're going to flesh this out a little bit further, but could you give us uh, your thoughts, uh, initial thoughts on the different types of leadership that might make a difference to this policy agenda, how we can change community a- attitudes on issues, particularly around climate change, by changing leadership ideas at either a local, national, state level? What are your initial thoughts? Well, I think what we're looking for is a form of distributed or decentralised leadership, and that can happen um, in multiple ways. So I feel as though what groups like Extinction Rebellion and other civil society organisations that are quite transgressive are doing is demonstrating leadership at a very local scale. It's to say if the rules are cooked, if the structure is captured, then we, we've refused to play by the rules anymore. And that's just calling it out, naming it, and then putting ourselves on the line. Another form of leadership is, is what I've seen modelled in the Greens over the last 20 years, which is basically evolved out of feminist um, anti-nuclear um, organising principles from the 1970s, where it's quite lateral. It's not hierarchical. It has structure, but not hierarchy. And decision-making is deliberative. So what you're doing is you're kind of trusting the collective intelligence when it's when it's well um, well organized and well mediated. So that's another one. I think the emergence of independence is another form of leadership where somebody who's trusted in a local community and is well enough resourced to put together a well structured local campaign is then representing in a much more direct way the interests of their constituents in the ways that we we try to do in the Greens as well. So all of these are I think emerging forms of leadership, we're seeing it in the private sector as well. We're seeing it in shareholder activism where people who invest in these companies are taking are taking on leadership. So what I think under state capture, what we should look for are forms of leadership that come from the margins because it's been abandoned at the core, if you like. We're not looking to leadership from the major parties because they've effectively outsourced it to these industry blocks. Where we're looking for leadership now is at a community level, 
is in these political insurgencies um, of which you've spoken of in earlier with earlier guests and in unlikely places, street-level stuff, school children taking days off school is a very powerful form of leadership, if you ask me. It's like what I'm nine years old, I have stuff all power, I can't vote and it's cooked anyway, what am I going to do? Bugger it. I'm going to organise with, with my mates and um, raise a ruckus that way. So that's where we need to look for leadership, I think, in these times. Scott, we'll go to a break in just a just a moment. I have one question that I wanted to ask you as we kind of wind up this this first part of our discussion, and that is how we start to bridge the divide that's being created in some local communities. Um, I've been doing quite a bit of research of late in um, regional parts of Tasmania, and there we see really deep divisions between people who genuinely want a different form of politics, a different form of leadership, and much greater attention to um, to protecting the environment particularly. And those people who are reliant on traditional sectors for their livelihoods and who are often very aggressive but are often absolutely terrified that they're going to lose their livelihoods through any change. And, of course, what you talk about when in what you call state capture makes those people more concerned and deepens those divides. And I'd just love to get your thoughts on what kinds of community leadership we need that can actually bridge those divides rather than deepening them. This seems to me such a fundamental challenge. Yeah, it does. I think that's very well expressed. Where my mind goes is to separating out and making a distinction between the interests of the investors who own these industries and the working people who rely for their livelihoods and making their mortgage repayments on these industries. Because what we see is uh, in places where a proper where proper industry transitions, we can see the writings on the wall, you can see that particular industries or sectors have no future. Where you've seen the transition ethic or you know just transitions ethic evolve, which retrains people, which restructures, which incubates emerging industries and creates more economic diversity in regional towns, that sometimes have a perilously narrow economic base. You know, if the mine shuts down or the mill shuts down, there's nothing else and there's nowhere else to turn. When you can see these transitions coming in advance or you can see these industry ruptures coming in advance, as we can with coal, oil and gas, internal combustion engines, as far as the automotive industry is concerned, certain kinds of agriculture, you know these industries don't have a future. What's happened uh, in the United States, if you contrast the US in Appalachia with Germany in the Ruhr region, where you've got on the one hand uh, in the US, these industries just absolutely go to the wall. The investors are gone. People at this mass unemployment layoffs, factories are shuttered uh, and it's it's devastating. As opposed to in Germany where you can see it coming and you actually swerve and you create a just transition. It doesn't happen overnight and it might be slower than greenies like me would like, but it looks after people. I think that's the kind of leadership that we're, that we're looking for is to reach across those lines is to say, this, this change is coming whether we like it or not, not because people like me are saying it. So how can we prepare for it and create those shock absorbers so that we're not just throwing workforces out like trash? Scott, that's a, a great place, I think, to stop for a short break and to come back in just a moment and pick up on some of these themes. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. 
Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems. And people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Welcome back. We're still here with Scott Ludlam in the final episode of our mini-series on leadership and democracy. And before the break, we were having, I think, a really insightful conversation about the kinds of leadership that we need moving forward in Australia, but also more broadly across the globe as we face the kind of catastrophic risks that Anna Greta mapped out in the introduction to this episode. Scott, I, I wanted to pick up on something that you said before the break and, and just tease that out a little bit. And you noted that in the approach that the, the Greens take to politics, that you've drawn on feminist principles and particularly ideas around, I think, listening and conversation and, and deliberation. We spoke with Natasha Stott-Despoia last week around some of the really serious issues facing women, particularly in the Australian parliament and the way in which a kind of hyper-masculinity or perhaps toxic masculinity impacts on women. But I think it would be fair to say that that kind of approach impacts on everyone that isn't prepared to engage in it. I'm really interested in hearing your thoughts on how we can think about gender in leadership, but also how you and the Greens have drawn on those principles of feminism in a meaningful way to try to change the way that politics plays out in practice. Look, I suppose my my experience is very particular and you'd be, you'd be far better off talking to Sarah or Christine or Larissa or Rach about how they experience that culture directly because I'm, you know, look at me, I'm the kind of person who that just washes right past and these power structures are designed to benefit people who look and sound like me. In the Greens, it's a very flat structure. It's a networked organisation that's not built on hierarchy. It's built on the organising principles that came out of the nuclear abolition movement in the 1960s and 1970s. And decisions decision-making is done by consensus, which means you're not building power blocks, you're not building voting majorities that can just knock decisions through. You're trying to persuade people, which means you have to listen to them. And so the internal party culture, and it's not perfect by any means, but the internal party culture has to be based on listening to people that you might disagree with and trying to work out where they're coming from while staying on the same side. We try to take that into our parliamentary work. You know, one thing that I was keenly aware of when I was there was that it's this quite soft machine that's then interfacing with a very, very hard-edged hierarchical patriarchal structure that's been built for interests that are very, very different to the ones that we're there to serve. And that creates, you know, immediate friction. That creates immediate difficulties. That as soon as you, as soon as you, you know, are trying to interface basically a social movement, a broad-based social movement with parliamentary machineries, you have to start making trade-offs, or you're just going to disappear without trace. So I don't have any answers to that, but I am aware that the party has been around now since the mid 1980s. We're doing something right in the sense that it's survived. Other minor parties have come and gone. Independents have come and gone. 
but we have managed to endure uh, and I think play a really important role on the crossbench, not always recognised, in a, in a rather carnivorous political culture. I think it's, it's something that we have managed to, to hold more than a foothold in state and federal parliaments over that time. The question for people involved in that movement now is, well, how to scale it up? how to work with independents and other people of like mind, how to fill up that parliament with people who aren't owned by the oil and gas industry. That's the most urgent question for us. Well, I might might ask a little question now about the um, independent movement and the conversation we had with Carolyn Hendricks and Dennis Ginevan a few weeks ago talked about this disconnect between the party politic model and what voters are voting for and the questions around accountability and representation. But I'm fascinated by the vo- with the Voices for movement about the importance of building grassroots community engagement rather than thinking about the candidate per se. Do you think this sort of model of grassroots activism and grassroots engagement and the Voices for the kitchen table model might adequately address the concerns about democratic representation if that model can be rolled out around Australia? It's definitely a part of it. So if you're up against a structure that basically says whoever spends the most money is is almost certain to, to win the seat, which is certainly the case that researchers in the United States and elsewhere have identified this investment theory of party competition, the only way to beat that is with grassroots movements where you substitute money for love. You know, if we're not, if, if it's independence or greens, if, if you're not cashing checks from these um, well-resourced industry sectors, then you have to build large-scale volunteer movements or you're simply not going to be heard in an electoral context. The way that that's worked out, whether it's the Greens, a Greens campaign or somebody like Cathy McGowan in, in Indi, is you go door to door. You talk to people directly in an unmediated way. Bloody difficult to do during a pandemic, but whether it be by phone banking, um, contacting people on social media or physically door knocking whole districts, that's one way that you cut across the saturation advertising that the other parties can afford with the backing that they have. The trick with the independence movement, and I'm I'm very impressed with these folks and used to work well with them, and, and they're obviously performing a, a really valuable role, is that, uh, and I, I don't know what the, the solution for this is because I know it's a very hopeful trend in Australian politics, but you also see then the major parties buying people off people will disappear in the middle of a really tight vote, come back with a swimming pool for their electorate, and then the bill goes through. I, I wouldn't have survived, to be honest, or I wouldn't, I wouldn't have been any kind of effective voice without um, the, the, the backing of a party because you, and this is, again, not speaking against independence, but you're likely to be in the swing vote on bill after bill after bill, and people working by themselves are under a formidable workload to manage the amount of work that comes across your desk if you're a crossbencher with a with a, a balance of power vote. So I think it's it's the the voices for movement is fascinating, it's interesting and I think it's quite important, but it's it by itself uh given the structures that we have at the moment I'm still concerned that it's not it's not going to be enough and it still leaves the major parties in a dominant position. So maybe there are other ways that we could imagine the future of leadership. And a, a couple of months ago, you had a book event here in Canberra at, sponsored by the Australia Institute. And in the question and answer session afterwards, you were asked, I thought, a great question by an audience member talking about climate action and asking you that, you know, if you had a, a couple of hundred thousand or a couple of thousand followers, what was the one thing that you would like us to do to be most effective, particularly in terms of climate action? If I remember correctly, your response was the first thing was to sack the leader. 
So is it leadership that we're looking for for our best future or is it something else? Is there a better structure that will actually get the changes that will contend with the threats that we face? At the moment, what's lighting me up the most is the kind of community leadership that's taking the fight up to the entities doing the capturing. And they like to stay behind the curtain. They like to stay out of shot. They want us to watch the Prime Minister's press conferences, but they don't want us coming to corporate AGMs. So let's go to AGMs. Let's go to the places that they don't want us. Let's eject the sponsorship from the cultural organisations, from the sporting codes. Let's get the oil and gas in the coal industry out, get its fingers out of all these different levels of our community. So the leadership that is exciting me the most at the moment is the decentralised and distributed leadership that's taking that fight up to the, to the corporations doing the capturing. Because we're not going to get our politics back by pretending that that's not there. So let's name it and let's go after it directly rather than sitting around peacefully waiting three years for an election to roll around and change the name of the captive major party. Let's do something. Let's go right to the root of the problem. And that's going to be leadership of informs that people aren't necessarily used to seeing, but it is the bottom up, the grassroots, the decentralised and the, and the raucous. And some of it is going to be transgressive. Some of it is going to be stopping traffic. And, and shutting down city blocks because we are in an emergency now. That's the kind of leadership that I'm most excited about right now. Scott, when you we talk about what the the roots of the problem are, one argument that, that we often see put forward is that a lot of this we can trace back to the rise of neoliberalism from the, the late 1970s or perhaps the early 1970s in, in Chile. Um, and then this shift that we saw around the turn of the century towards financialised capitalism, the idea that we can have profit without productivity or without producing anything. Um, and we've arguably seen over the past three to four decades, the ways in which a dollar value has been placed on all activity, including human activity and including care. And this has created a very narrow role for the state and a particular form of leadership that's able to succeed in that kind of context. And I think you've mapped all of that out beautifully with your, your conversation about the, the way in which industries have captured so much of politics. I guess as we begin to draw this conversation to, to a close, I'd be really keen to hear your ideas on how we actually get the kind of deep systems reform that we need. We hear conversations about post-capitalism. We see a global movement towards um, a well-being economy where we measure what a successful economy is by things other than GDP or profitability. What are your thoughts, Scott, on how we need to make some of these systems changes to bring about a better future? It's, it's a big mm, question, I, I, I know. <laughs> no, it is. It is. It's the question of our time, I think, and I like the way that you've expressed it there. I think so two things come to mind. One is let's look for for more evolved forms of democracy. So the kind of stuff that I sketch out really briefly in the book, the deliberative democracy models where you're, you're looking at more effective ways of aggregating collective intelligence. So rather than expecting one expert leader to have all the answers, it, we're looking for the wisdom of the crowds. I don't think it's a coincidence that Extinction Rebellion is talking about citizens' assemblies. It's more democratised forms of decision-making and, and reaching for more innovative ways of collectively working out what we need. I think also a big part of it is defending the existing achievements of past generations who won really significant institutions and significant reforms. It means defending public broadcasting, defending 
public health system, defending Medicare, defending our tertiary education sector, all these different public good institutions that are under such attack and erosion at the moment. Um, so part of it is this kind of defensive posture of looking after the wins that that previous generations were able to achieve. And part of it is reaching towards, well, what's expected of us now? Um, and that we have, the planet has to be a part of that conversation. The biosphere has to be a part of it. What I kept coming back to, including in the book, is we're not inventing this from scratch. You know, this continent was home to the oldest living culture on earth that practiced these forms of distributed distributed democratic forms, earth care, cultural restoration, regenerative economics for 60,000 years and more. So it's not that we have to magic up some kind of whiz-bang Star Trek technology that's going to fix this for us or invent it out of whole cloth. Like a lot of the answers are all around us if we can bring those voices to the centre. Scott, we're, we're going to have to wrap up this conversation. Unfortunately, I feel as though we could keep talking about this issue, these issues for a very long time and hopefully we'll come back so we can continue this conversation. But as we do wrap up for now, I wanted to, to go from the, the kind of the big changes that we may, need to make to how we begin those changes. And what are your thoughts on the first step, the most urgent first step that we need to take in Australia particularly to ensure that our political systems and our leaders are able to be held accountable and to work in the best interests of our country, our environment and our people? What's that first step? I reckon first step is to find the others. Find other people who feel that way. Whatever you do, don't feel alone. If you're feeling alone in this or helpless or powerless, yes, it's designed to make us feel like that like there's nothing we can do about it. The first step is find the others, now, whether that be groups like the Australian Democracy Network that have done a whole ton of policy work on how to fix this at a, at a policy level, how to fix donations, the revolving doors, all the stuff we've been talking about, or find, find, the, find the candidate who's going to represent you in your electorate. And if you can't find somebody who's not sponsored by a gas company, then maybe consider being that candidate. But find the others. That's the most important thing. We are not by ourselves in this. We're the majority of people who are pissed off. And the way that we build power is by finding each other and, and working in common cause. Scott Ludlam, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been a phenomenal conversation. I love that note of optimism that we've ended on, that you can make change, that you can find others to work with. Thank you so much for sharing your insights with us today. Oh, it's been a great conversation. Sharon, it's been an extraordinary series of conversations over the last couple of weeks talking about leadership and democracy. I wonder if there's been a more important moment in time for us to reflect on the nature of power and the way in which people's wishes and needs are represented through our democratic process, through our leadership structure and through our politics here in Australia. I think we're all aware that we're facing an unprecedented and growing number of challenges. If it's just simply the coronavirus pandemic, that on its own is a significant challenge. But in fact, the coronavirus is occurring in the complex milieu in which we're existing of an increasing number of environmental crises uh, driven by anthropomorphic climate change, of loss of biodiversity, of the challenges of our information age, which brings both its assets and its liabilities. I've been really inspired by the thoughts and uh, framework that have been offered by our participants over the last few weeks, what have been your highlights? Look, this has been a, a fantastic series. And I agree with you, Anna Greta, that we are at a moment in time 
time, a very prolonged moment in time, when the need for different forms of leadership is more urgent than ever. And I think that conversation that we just had with Scott mapped out so powerfully the need for different ways of thinking about leadership, um, but also recognising why leadership and political parties are operating as they are in the current environment. And that has to do with the broader context that that Scott referred to as um, state capture, but really is grounded fundamentally in the neoliberal system, the financialised capital system that we find ourselves in, and in what Sharon Friel refers to as a, a consumptogenic society. But when I think back over this series, you know, what do I take from it? Well, from Frank Bongiorno and from Chris Wallace, you know, the importance of understanding the historical, the socio-historical context within which leadership plays out. But also from that conversation, understanding that we can learn from what's gone before. And of course, Scott picked up on that today saying, Mm. you know, we have these really powerful examples of where change has happened in the past, but also to recognise that our past doesn't necessarily define us. We can rewrite the kind of future that we want and the kind of leadership that we want. I think that conversation with Carolyn and Dennis you know, sort of points us towards the, the optimism and the hope of those new forms of democracy that are emerging through the voices of campaigns, but also through local politics. And I think what really matters there is the way in which people are engaging with politics and, and having that sense that they can and make a change. And of course, that conversation with Natasha Stottesboyer last week was wide ranging. But I think that last point that she made when we asked her, what, what is it that we need to change? When she said, we need to stop violence against women. I think we've seen over the past months um, and indeed years in Australia and in Australian politics, the gendered nature of politics, but how that's playing out as abuse and violence. And I think Natasha is absolutely right. If we want a more humane society, we need leadership that steps up and says violence against half the population, the discrimination and the discrediting of half the population is no longer acceptable. And from Scott's conversation today, I think there were many points of that that were kind of despairing, but it was very optimistic. We can make change and perhaps we're starting to see change coming through these grassroots movements and demands for a different future. And those demands are coming, of course, from young people particularly, but as uh, the current sort of generation that holds power, we have to lead that change because we cannot leave this catastrophic situation that you've described, Anna Greta, for future generations to sort out. It's a narrative disruption. It's time for us to change the story. I think party politics are mendable. I think we can see both sides of our political spectrum begin to represent our people more effectively. I think we can inspire people uh, to be better engaged in our political process. And I think that's one of the themes that really comes through all of the conversations that we've had is that two-way responsibility that I think Carolyn Hendricks described, that it's not just us blaming the leaders for the failure of leadership, but it's also the responsibility of us as participants in a democracy to engage more actively in the process. And as we engage in that process, we will see an improvement, I think, in the results of of our leadership and decision making. I think that's right. I think we leave this mini-series with a sense of inspiration and optimism. And 
you know, it is true that knowledge is power. And hopefully this mini-series has contributed to some deeper knowledge, not just about the challenges, but about how we move forward and how we do some repair work and some mending and some disruption, as you say, Anna Greta. So listeners, we really hope you've enjoyed this mini-series as much as we have. You can hear in our voices and from, from our conversation that we really have got taken a lot from this, and both Anna Greta and I are feeling inspired. We will be back next week and we are back um, for a couple of our regular episodes and we then have another mini-series, which we are both very excited about and we'll tell you more about that over the next couple of episodes. Do reach out to us on Twitter at Apps Policy Forum. That's at APPS Policy Forum. Or by email, you can reach us at podcast at policyforum.net. Probably the best way to get in touch with us is to join our Facebook group. If you just type Policy Forum Pod into the search bar, you'll find us there. And please don't forget to subscribe to us on whatever platform you choose to listen to your podcasts on. For those who are interested in Scott Ludlam's new book that we referred to during this episode, uh, he spoke with Mark Kenny on Democracy Sausage, the podcast that also comes out of the Crawford School in early June. So have a listen to that episode, which is called Full Circle with Scott Ludlam, if you would like to learn more about that book. And I really recommend that book to our listeners. We will put a link to all of that information about Scott's book and to the Democracy Sausage episode alongside this podcast on on our website. So do join us again for our episode next week. But from me, Sharon Bessel, it's bye-bye for now. And it's bye-bye from me to Anna Greta Hunter. If you're inspired, go out and find your local group. Find your people, find your voice. Very much looking forward to hearing from you again next week, Sharon. Me too. See you all next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.